there's something in the present that is finding new sustenance in the old, old storylines of fairy tales. Once upon a time in my childhood, for example, there was Disney's frothy Snow White. What do you do when things go wrong? But now we have a darker, adult, self-realized Snow White and the Huntsman. All these years, all I've known is darkness. But I have never seen a brighter light than when my eyes just opened. And I know that light burns in all of you! The last few years have seen multiple renditions of Snow White and Hansel and Gretel, as well as Frozen, Disney's updated take on the Snow Queen. There are overt fairy tale themes in hit TV series like True Blood, Grimm, and Once Upon a Time. To uncover what all of this might be saying about our time, we turn to Maria Tatar. She's an expert on classic fairy tales and legends, and on how they help us work with things like fear and hope. These stories, she says, have survived by adapting across cultures and history. They are carriers of the plots we endlessly rework as we weave the narratives of our lives. There's the great once upon a time, which is a marker. It says, this is not the here and now. You can let your imagination run wild. You can go in places that you'd be scared to go otherwise. You can say things that you're afraid to talk about. You know, in in just mysterious ways, you come to an understanding or a resolution. Not a resolution, I should say, because you have to keep working through things. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Maria Tatar is a professor of Germanic languages and literature at Harvard University, where she also chairs the program in folklore and mythology. I interviewed her in 2013. When she was doing her graduate studies, such stories were not deemed serious enough for scholarly attention. But she inched towards them with a doctoral thesis on a 19th century German philosopher who delved into the dark side of nature. A daughter of Hungarian immigrants who fled Holocaust-era Central Europe, these themes were the stuff of reality, not fantasy, for Maria Tatar. You know, whoever I'm talking with, whatever our subject, I actually always start with this question about whether there was a religious or spiritual background to your childhood. Oh, gosh, I did. Uh, I, I was going to say I had a secular childhood, but mm-hmm. I was sort of obliged to go to Sunday services, every, you know, with my family. And I remember that as utter torture, <laughs> sitting through a sermon. And maybe that explains why I was attracted to fairy tales, <laughs> because of the excitement and the thrill. And, you know, they never turned you into the bored child. Huh. Uh, but there was something spiritual about it in that uh, my sister and I read the stories in a book called Die schönsten Kindermärchen der Brüder Grimm, uh, the most beautiful fairy tales of the Brothers Grimm. I didn't know German. Uh, she didn't know German either. But but this book had these gorgeous illustrations, which just drew us into the stories. And so I just remember looking at those illustrations and falling in love with them. And 
The artist wasn't particularly distinguished. It wasn't Arthur Rackham who gave us those gorgeous gnarly trees and uh, <laughs> uh, whimsical trolls and, and beautiful princesses. But nonetheless, uh, the, I can still see those images in my mind's eye. And it, it also sounds to me from your where, who your family was and where they came from that the fairy tales were part of your childhood and also you had this personal connection to the kind of dramatic and menacing tone that's in some of those fairy tales. I mean, that you wrote somewhere that Europe was a place for you that signified deep horror and that mingling of kind of operatic beauty, I think that's a phrase you've used, and kind of monstrous terror that combination, that juxtaposition is such an enduring quality of these stories. Uh, that collision always makes a direct visceral hit, and, and you get both in the story, and yet also the promise of a happily ever after. Right. That is, no matter how horrible that monster is, how frightening, uh, the hero survives. The hero will battle that monster, figure out a way to outwit it. Uh, to get behind it and push it into the oven rather than being devoured. So the fact that there is a way out, I think, is, you know, one of the great strengths of these fairy tales and a reason why we can also read them to children or tell right. them to children without having deep anxieties about how it will yeah. damage them in one way or another. You know, one of the things, though, that I feel you've been very important in bringing out for people and tell is telling the story of the Brothers Grimm. And I mean, you you initially became a scholar of these kinds of stories, but and and they were scholars. You know, there's an anecdote in one of your books where you you talk about William Grimm remembering his father, who's one of the brothers, and saying silence was their real element, and describing that all the only sound he associated with with the scratching of their pens and Jacob's little coughs. Oh. Um, so, so t tell a little bit of, of that story of what they felt they were doing and what they were working with originally, which is a little bit different from what has come down to us. Oh, well, you've you've flagged an extraordinary point because you know they're growing up in silence and yet they're connecting with an oral story. Yes, yes. <laughs> with these vibrant scenes around the fireside where yeah. people are, you know, gossiping, uh, exchanging stories, scaring uh, each other, <laughs> scaring each other. You know, yeah. there's no television, no electronic entertainment. So what are you going to do? But you know, create stories that are as melodramatic as possible that have the highs and lows and everything in between. So there are these brothers, and they, they, in their 20s, they decided to undertake this great scholarly project of collecting folklore, the voice of the people, uh, folks' poesy. But, you know, the Grimm's themselves were quite cosmopolitan, and I think what they wanted to do was collect these stories before they disappeared. Yes, there was sort of an effort to consolidate national identity and all of that, but they recognized that these stories went way back. They were mythical. They were powerful. They were changing over time, and they wanted to capture how these stories were being told in their own day and age. So what did they do? They wrote to other scholars, writers, and and then they listened. They listened to the stories in their own milieu, getting the stories, grabbing them from wherever they found them, uh, putting them into this volume, 
and discovering that uh, they were actually selling copies of this book, that parents were reading the stories to children. And that wasn't necessarily something uh, they had foreseen would happen, is it? It, it was not part of their, their plan. Right, and I, right. I think they were quite thrilled by it. Uh-huh. Uh, they, and they also res- were responding as they went through successive editions, editing the tales, responding to reviewers, some of whom worried about the sexual illusions in the tales. Right. These were, after all, they were adult entertainment. And, uh, and and the vulgar coarse language, the scatological humor in the tales as well. So they started editing out, making the tales a little bit more child-friendly, taking out the story of Hans Dumm, who makes girls pregnant by, by just looking at them. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Although I would imagine that might be one a lot of parents would like to tell their teenagers and have them believe. <laughs> Watch, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, the one, you you the example that in the original Rapunzel, in a lot of those stories, the prince climbs up her hair every day and then she gets pregnant, right? I mean, that's not really how that comes down to us. Uh, yes, and then in later versions, the birth of the, of the two children is never connected with the prince. Right, She's just right. magic. <laughs> magically pregnant uh-huh. and um, yeah um you know you um i i i know that some people across history have spoken of this canon of fairy tales of stories um as being akin to sacred cultural treasure or sacred canon and i i sense that you for you there's a really clear distinction between these two kinds of canons that that both have important places in Western culture. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm deeply interested in the idea of looking at the evolution of the tales. How have they migrated into other cultures? What happens to a grim tale when it ends up in the U.S. Right. or in China? How is it reimagined? NBC's series Grimm reimagines the Grimm brothers and their descendants as part of the stories they captured. The generations of the Grimm family inherit powers when they reach adulthood to subdue the fairy tale creatures they wrote about. These creatures, it turns out, actually live in the world in human disguise. In this scene, the latest in the line of Grimm's, a police officer, is just coming into his inheritance. Who are you? Wow, you are new at this. Look, I don't want any more trouble, okay? I'm not that kind of blue pot. I don't kill anymore. I have it in years. Wait, what did you say you were? Blutbod? Vulgarized by your ancestors as the big bad wolf? What, did you just get the books tonight? You know about the books? Of course I know about the books. We all know about the books. You people started profiling us over 200 years ago. But as you can see, I am not that big... And I am done with the bad thing. Well, how do you... How do I stay good? Through a strict regimen of diet, drugs, and Pilates. I'm a reformed blutbad. A Vita blutbad. It's a different church altogether. But you guys go to church? Sure. Don't you? You know, there is no original Little Red Riding Hood. Mm-hmm. And that's we the difference you're saying between a, a sacred story... Uh, that, well, that's right. Mm-hmm. You know, I, these are not stories 
that are mythological. You know, I really see them as part of the great cauldron of story, where you've got myths and legends and folk tales. And so I think, you know, we, we always have this tendency. I find myself sometimes saying, oh, in, in the original. But of course, you know, they're just different versions. They sprang up. You can find Little Red Riding Hood in 17th century China. There's a, a version. The girl doesn't have a red riding hood, but but she behaves very much like the girl in the woods. Right. And uh, and so I I just I am deeply committed to the idea of our creating our own versions of these stories. That is, if you're not comfortable with Gretel getting behind the witch and pushing her into the oven, tell it in a different way or rewrite it or, you know, look at another cultural production that takes the story in a different direction. But, but, but see, here's something that in, intrigues me about that. Um, it's not that there aren't violent stories in, the, in religious canons, in the Bible, for example. I mean, there certainly are. But there is an intentionality of, of moral reasoning and, and a role modeling, and, and the, the fairy tales are very different. And so even as you say, you know, the, the hero, there's, there's very little pure morality. And in fact, there's a lot of brutality. And, and even when there's a happy ending for the, uh, for the good guys and good girls, uh, often, I mean, terrible things happen to the villains. Um, and I'm, I guess what, one thing I'm curious about is, as, as you've kind of spent your life steeped in this, what's your sense of, of why, as human beings, we need we need and use both of these kinds of stories um, to understand oh, yeah, ourselves well, and make our way through the world. That's a great question. And, and let me just start with the, the violence in fairy tales, which you're absolutely right. It's often surreal. It's burlesque. Yeah. It's carnivalesque. It makes no sense. And, uh, and, and I do that, but it gets us talking. It gets us trying to figure out, you know, how do, how do we make sense of the story? How do we put the pieces together? And I sort of take these stories back to the fireside when human beings, uh, for better or for worse, got together and cooperated and collaborated. Uh, we, you know, reached the top of the food chain because we were able to exchange information, pass along wisdom, uh, stories about predators in the woods and how to get away from right. them. And uh, and so there is a certain kind of wisdom encapsulated in the tale. But for centuries, I think we've made the mistake of trying to pin a single message or moral on the story. Right. It simplifies Charles it, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Charles Perrault did this in France. He ended each story with, with a moral. Mm. Uh, William Bennett did this in the Book of Virtues, right. published in the eight. You know, I, th I think he actually put the moral up front and center. And the beauty of these stories is that, you know, they don't have a single message or moral. And, and how do we draw the wisdom out of the story, it gives us an opportunity to talk about scary things, mm. about cultural contradictions, you know, innocence and seduction, monstrosity and compassion, uh, alterity, the other, who is the, you know, now we're taming the monsters. We're making friends with them uh, instead of, 
you know, defeating them and chopping off right. their heads and that right. kind of thing. So these stories change in wonderfully productive ways, and and they do get us talking about our values. You know, they help us develop a kind of moral compass. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, with folklorist and Grimm Brothers scholar Maria Tatar, we're exploring what fairy tales work in us and how we work with them. One of the interesting, one of the details that I've learned from you is so all the twists and turns, as you said, in different cultures with stories we know. So, for example, a story that many of us know so well would be Cinderella. What I remember growing up in the 60s, 70s was the Leslie Ann Warren movie, Cinderella movie, which was just all sweet and light. You also then fast forward to today, look at the Kardashians or reality TV makeovers um, as other ways that we work with some of these I- I images of women that are so primordial. It's really interesting. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, the makeover movie or or reality show. We're fascinated by that, you know, and, and there I'd there's Hans Christian Andersen's Ugly Duckling, which is right. <laughs> such a wonderful childhood story because, you know, you may be the ugly duckling, but you'll turn into a, a swan one day. And that's the ultimate story of hope and redemption and happily ever after. And and the Kardashians, you pointed out, is... The, the 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 tension between the mother and the daughters that there's that classic oh, dynamic oh, absolutely it's yeah, almost the, the, like Cinderella's stepmother <clears throat> competing yeah. with her first of all the hyper dysfunctional family which is you know every fairy tale family is like that They're <laughs> we all, didn't invent this did we in modernity <laughs> no and then I, I do watch the Kardashians uh, my, uh, I, I will confess I've stopped but I used to watch it on my exercise bike and there's this one moment where Chris sees her daughters I think in bikinis they're on the beach and she's got you know some sort of robe she's completely covered up and then they show images you know, her mind is at work of her when she was younger mm. and able mm. to wear bikinis. And this, you know, you feel this. She really deeply resents her Mirror, daughters. mirror on the wall who's <laughs> the fairest of and them all. <laughs> suddenly, yeah, you see, I mean, these fairy tales do. Uh, they are part of our reality. Are you watching, uh, I am, this resurgence of really overt fairy tale in TV, in quite good TV now, this show Once Upon a Time. Yes, I follow Once Upon a Time yes, and Grimm, the crime series. Yeah, and I even think um, True Blood, I don't know if you've watched that. Has oh, full a, of fairy full tale of moments. it, yes. Yeah, and the yeah. longer it goes on, the more it is about, it, it picks up so many more of those themes. It's not just about vampires anymore. Right. And the, and once you start looking, I mean, even I think this started almost with Sex in the City, where you had so many, you know, it was just littered <laughs> with fairy tale illusions. Well, tell me that. Oh, what's the fairy tale oh, in Sex in the City? You know, I, I, the Carrie loses her shoe at one point. Uh, and and <laughs> the fact that it's so much better. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Right. The shoe theme. And then they're always referring to happily ever after yeah. and, uh, and fairy tales and 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 all of that. So so I, I think that um, 
these tales are constantly recycled in explicit ways, but almost every narrative kind of alludes to or or a, a fairy tale or a fairy tale motif will flash out at you. There is something just primal about these tales. But I just it 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 seems to me that television is becoming this newly really robust and and sophisticated place where we are storytelling um for sure right yeah. and 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 some of these some of these shows we've mentioned um you know in some ways this represents um, a, a reversal of the move that the grims made that that somehow in the 21st century um really great writers and thinkers are finding ways to bring these stories back to make them adult stories again. Do, do you have a sense of, of what it might be in our culture right now that makes these, these old motifs seem more uh, relevant again, more worth pondering and playing with? Oh, yeah, that's an interesting question because you could say, you know, everyone always believes that they are living in an era of transition, of yeah. crisis and all of that. But, you know, I think that we are, there, there is, I don't, I don't know whether to describe it as a crisis, but an inflection point that is quite extraordinary, you know, with the internet, with all of the challenges that that is, in, the great upside to that with, you know, offering more access, but the downside, which is that, you know, no one knows how to monetize this, and mm-hmm. you know all these, all these. The publishing industry is in crisis. The you know, music all of our, industry, all of our the industries film industry. and institutions yeah, right. are being turned inside out. Exactly. By it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so I think that there is a kind of move to, you know, go back uh, to sort of try to. Uh, reinvent ourselves using the old in a way, but in a, in a way that is more self-conscious than usual. So I'm still trying to figure it all out. I think we're all just navigating new territory. Yeah. And there is a sort of comfort in the old in bringing back the familiar uh, in a new way, to be sure, but relying on it to help us navigate the future. And these stories, after all, we're used to help us make sense of the world, and for that reason, I think we need them more than ever. Here's a you have a great sentence somewhere. He wrote, "There's there is transformative power in terror, as life has lately taught us, and we count on stories to keep us from forgetting that." That that to me feels like it speaks very directly to to this these early years of our century. Oh yeah, for sure, and and we have to face down those demons and figure out what they what they are, uh, both the demons within and without, and and I think the stories provide a platform for doing that. In the ABC series Once Upon a Time, there's a psychological twist on the Red Riding Hood character. She is a lovely maiden, but she is also the wolf. She carries a potential to transform into the wolf inside her at full moon. Almost done. Let's finish clearing out those perishables. What the hell is this? We're making a cage. Why are you building a cage? Tonight's the first full moon since the curse broke. It's the first night of wolf's time. 
I thought you figured out how to control the wolf in you ages ago. Yeah, but thanks to the curse, I haven't turned in 28 years. I might be rusty. But I can't let what happened last time, what happened to Peter, happen to anyone else. What about your red hood that could keep you from turning? If I had it, I've looked everywhere. I even went to gold. It's not in town. I don't think it came over with the curse. Ruby, I know you. I trust you. Snow trusted you. Wolf's time or not, you won't hurt anyone tonight. Maybe. But I can't afford to take any chances. You can listen again, download, and share this show with Maria Tatar through our website, onbeing.org. Coming up, how violent stories actually help us face our fears. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today we're wondering what it means that so many contemporary television shows and movies are revisiting fairy tales. My guest, Maria Tatar, is a renowned Germanicist and an expert on classic children's literature and folklore. But she understands fairy tales not as belonging to the domain of childhood, but belonging to the childhood of our culture. And she traces how they evolve across time and many cultures. What do we know? Little girl on the way to her grandfather's house and showed up. That's him, the guy with the beard. Do we know he's clean? No. We're looking into that. Grimm is a crime drama, and its often criminal, mythical characters hide within innocuous lives in the neighborhoods of contemporary Portland, Oregon. Anything else? No, thanks for your time. We'll see ourselves out. Heck, I'm sorry. I really thought this time... Wait. The song. What song? He was humming the same song, the one on the dead girl's iPod. On the surface, um, maybe, the brutality that runs throughout these stories might be kind of puzzling. A couple of things you point out I find very helpful. I mean, one is that fantasy removed from reality, whereas you said it's sometimes burlesque. I mean, it's so extreme that it's unbelievable. But that that, that creates a place to work on fear, kind of, in a way, a safe place to work on fear. And, and also that... Um, in fact, children, uh, as well as adults, actually know what to do with violence, not, oh, to, yes. not to be overwhelmed by the violence in the stories. Right. Well, there's the great once upon a time, which is a marker. It says, this is not the here and now. Huh. Oh, interesting. Uh, you can let your imagination run wild. You can go in places that you'd be scared to go otherwise. You can say things that you're afraid to you know, to talk about. And I, I love the fact that Mallorcan storytellers begin their tales with it was and it was not. Mm-hmm. Uh, that sort mm-hmm. of split reference right. that is, uh, it, this, is, this isn't real, but there's something about it that I always think of Harry Potter in this context, Harry Potter and Dumbledore talking, and Dumbledore says, uh, 
just because it's in your head doesn't mean it's not real. Mm. So um, there's something about, you know, you're moving back and forth, but it's a safe space. Once upon a time is a safe space for all of us, mm. and especially for children who might not have the wor words to talk about, abstract words or words that, you know, capture feelings, but who understand a story and will be drawn into a story. And again, you know, as I said, they get us, uh, I, I, the, I hate to sound like a broken record, but they get us to talk about things. And, you know, in, in just mysterious ways, you come to an understanding or a resolution. Now, not a resolution, I should say, because you have to keep working through things. But you you um, even kind of inhabit that, <laughs> that, those questions or those, that fear. Exactly, uh -huh. exactly. And, you know, I wonder also how much of a connection you see between this dynamic and, and another phenomenon of our time. Maybe this has always been true, but just the wild popularity of murder mysteries and suspense. And again, a lot of that is being written very well these days. There are, there are really brilliant people um, I mostly read British uh, mystery authors, and, you know, it's great literature, some of it. Um, but it is about people killing each other and, and being pathological. I don't know, what to, for, what's the connection for you with that phenomenon and this? And why is pathology riveting? And, and how oh, can it possibly it? not be bad for us to, <laughs> to consume so much of this? I think what it is is it, what makes it so riveting is there's so many mysterious things happening. And that's what all great literature does. It, it just presents these puzzles and riddles. And what is this? You know, it confronts us with things that, you know, we can't explain, but the words will help us to, to figure things out. So I, I always use this word in class of hermeneutic puzzles. That is, uh, we become hermeneutes trying to make sense of the interpreters, world. Interpreters, is that what I mean? Yeah, yeah. interpreters, yeah. 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 And, and it makes us wiser. And this is why Harry Potter is so great, because kids are always having to solve puzzles and figure things right. out. You've got There's an intellectual the, challenge in this stuff. Yeah. Uh -huh. uh, Voldemort is called Tom Riddle. Yeah. And, you know, this is why we get lost in books and absorbed. And uh, Tom, uh, Tim Wynne-Jones has this great line about the immersive reading experience where you are in this world. You breathe differently. You're kind of underwater. And not only do you learn a lot about that new world, but you discover how your own mind works. And so, ultimately, you, you learn about yourself. This is a great lesson of the anthropologist Levi Strauss, too, that ultimately these stories help us figure out how our brains are wired. Mm, interesting. That's very interesting. Yeah, because what is that line you said that, you know, what is it, that it trips pathology and, and violence trips things in our brain. And, you know, you may have written that even 10 years ago before we knew now how absolutely true that is, uh, that things light up in our brains and that that, that being riveted is real, it's physiologically real. Right. And it's great that you use that term, lights up. Something lights up in our brain yeah. because, uh, you know, I mean, just going back to the beauty and horror that we started with, there may be that darkness and terror, but there's always in stories there, you know, 
I, I guess in Kafka there may not be, but, but you know, there is this light and hope and uh, this beauty and sparkle and glitter and dazzle, uh, the hope of redemption. And there's something a little bit interesting to me, too, in that um, we are riveted by all the drama, including the the murder, the the pathology, the darkness. I notice in myself, and I think this is a pretty common experience, um, that at some remove from these stories, and, and Harry Potter is another example of this, um, and certainly these fairy tales... What you remember, I mean, your 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 primary sense of those stories is something quite lovely and magical in a good way. I remember taking my kids to see the Star Wars movies when they were really little. And, I mean, right. Wars is in the title. <laughs> but yeah. I didn't remember. Conflict, yes. I mean, but it's it's incredibly, it's it's war. I mean, it starts out with all these really scary soldiers, and it's incredibly menacing and violent. And I had completely forgotten that. What I remembered was Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia and Obi-Wan Kenobi. Um, yeah, you're. I'm so fascinated by the question of what do we take from a childhood stories and bring into our adult lives. And at one point, I asked many of my students what, what books from childhood they had brought with them to Harvard and, and why. And what I was struck by was that often uh, these students didn't really remember much about the story, but there was something in the story, some little talisman, some some moment, a sentence, uh, something a character does, a detail in a picture sometimes that they bonded with. It was almost like a little souvenir of the tale that they then carried with them into adult life. And, you know, when they would think of that, everything would light. We talked about brains lighting mm-hmm, up, mm-hmm. <laughs> that there was and some deep connection with with your childhood. And trying to figure that out was always such an interesting exercise because inevitably a story grew out of that souvenir. Hmm. Not necessarily the story from childhood, hmm. but, but a new, a new t- their own story. And so, you know, again, it became a kind of platform for, for figuring things out in their own lives in their own daily lives. I'm Krista Tippett with On Being, today with folklorist and Grimm Brothers scholar Maria Tatar, exploring what fairy tales work in us and how we work with them. Just following on some of the things we've been talking about also in terms of popular culture, I also do see some very gritty ways right now, um, specific to our time, I think. Um, You know, television like The Walking Dead or Breaking Bad or The Hunger Games you've talked about. There's also this genre where there's a really intense existential fear. and And one of the themes in a lot of these is everything that we think has civilized us is taken away, right? And that we are brutalized. Um, right, right. And, right. Uh, but I, I, I've read you feeling concerned also about some of that going to new extremes that might not be good for us. 
You know, it's I don't like to be the one preaching a sermon, uh, as I told you about my childhood experience. So I'm always reluctant to sort of be judgmental. But I must admit that Breaking Bad was my breaking point. Mm-hmm. That is, uh, there, there's some, I remember just seeing, I, I won't even describe it, but I thought, okay, that's just too much for me. Yeah, I feel I, that I way too. I have to turn that off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and. Hunger Games I, I was startled by because to me the idea of a book about children killing children was just going to an extreme. It was violating a cultural taboo in a way that uh, was difficult for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then there I read the book and I watched the movie and I thought they were sensational and really fascinating. This, you know, And I, I didn't – even though it had crossed a line – Suzanne Collins somehow seemed to have done it in a way that made sense for me, that, you know, there seemed to be a real point to that. Uh, And, you know, I'm not the one who is looking for for a lesson, but, you know, we do have a new culture, uh, uh, you know, where there's a lot more is permitted. We don't protect our children as much as we once did. And... And I guess you know I do worry that children today they can see anything. Yeah, they and they, they don't. Can, they know yeah. they're not protected, right? That's right. right. <laughs> I mean, you, here's and, something you wrote: the savagery we offer children today is more unforgiving than it once was, and the shadows are rarely banished by comic relief. Instead of stories about children who struggle to grow up, we have stories about children who struggle to survive. But I I think that's a reality. People, even children, are aware of. It, it it is, and and I have to say that the minute you go into the protectionist mode mm-hmm. and you say you know we need to we need to draw a line and and it shouldn't be anything goes, you just get a lot of blowback from people who say oh you know you don't give children enough credit yeah. uh, they are they're able to navigate this and and also we live in a violent world and therefore children should be should know that. And and all of that, but but some I think we haven't been very thoughtful about yeah. figuring out, you know, where is that line? Where do we draw it? Um, what responsibilities do we have as as adults? But as I say, I always feel uncomfortable, and and maybe that's why we're not talking about it because it makes us uncomfortable to be the censors or the editors or the the ones who are saying, oh no, no no, that's too much. You know, I remember when my son, who's now 14, I think he was probably 12 or 13 when he was reading Hunger Games and um, really just inhaling it. And uh, and I asked him what it was about. I mean, I'd heard other people tell me what it was about. And, I, and the first word that came out of his mouth is, it's about poverty. You know, that's, oh, that's not the word other people... Yeah. It was, I mean, it wasn't yeah, about... It, yeah. I mean, it was about children struggling, but if this book has him thinking about poverty, well, okay. Oh, yeah, because uh, Katniss is... Uh, remember, <sighs> the book starts out, she's skin and bones. Yeah. And she's, you know, she's living in Panem, uh, the country of bread, uh, where there is no food. And, and she, you know, she becomes this extraordinary trickster figure. Yeah. Uh, who has to survive in a time of famine and use her wits? Uh, so, just as we kind of, as we kind of um, draw to a close, I mean, let's talk about, you know, as you mentioned, what would that look like to become more intentional 
more curious in the first instance and more intentional about understanding how these things shape us. And one thing I think you've written about very interestingly is, you know, you were already a scholar of these things, and then you had your own children, um, and you wrote about the under, about this realization that the contact zone formed by bedtime reading was more complex and vexed than I had imagined. What, what did that add? What does that add to your understanding of all this? Oh, I, well, I think first there was the, the shock of discovering that these stories were not so culturally innocent. But then the realization that, you know, there's this wonderful opportunity. We, we were just talking about, you know, our responsibilities as adults. Yeah. There's this wonderful opportunity at nighttime, you know, when things have settled down, when it's quiet, to tell these stories and, you know, to go back to our own childhoods in a way. I, I was always finding myself, you know, just remembering. Um, oh, it was as if these, you know, connections were being made in my brain, remembering these stories and the impact they had had on me. So there's this nostalgic element to it, uh, along with the educational and psychological bonding and all of that. Mm -hmm. But then children use these stories to move forward, to learn more about the world, to become adult. They're being educated. So so there you are, you know, together. Uh, and and having the opportunity sometimes just to read the words on the page and you know have this great experience together of the beauty of of the language right uh, but then sometimes you know just to stop and explain things improvise it's almost like it becomes a hypertext where you know you click on a word and <laughs> <laughs> you click and the two of you talk about this or and and then you know to move along with the story to improvise at times and to create your own story, to laugh about it, to worry about it, to provide comfort. And it's just, you know, I look back on it and I, I think it was, you know, a formative experience for my children and then just, a, you know, intoxicating. Not always. Though. I mean, I admit that there were times when I, I wanted the one-minute bedtime story. Yeah, it was like, again, again, <laughs> you know? again. Okay, no, yeah. I'm exhausted. <laughs> And then the fact that, yeah, that the, the story, it's not bedtime. It doesn't yeah. put the children to sleep. It often wakes right. them up. Right. And they get a second wind. So, but that's great, too, I think. I think at this point in my life, the thing that I'm most suspicious about may be what's most comforting, the happily ever after. It, it seems in some ways to me like such a strange way to end stories which are often just full of how dark and hard and complex and bizarre life can be and, and even magnified. And it's not even necessarily, maybe this is me being part of the Hunger Games culture, I don't, I don't want to teach my children that everything ends happily ever after. I don't know. Am I, am I, t am I being too serious about this? Oh, well, no. I, you know, C.S. Lewis told us about, what is it, the beating of the heart when he hears the happy, happily ever after. Yeah. And I suppose, 
you know, not all of our stories need to end that way. There, you know, there can be a mix of things. For the very young, I think it's just a great way to end a story right. because it, you know, as human beings, we just need hope. We need to know. Yes, things can take a, a better turn. And I don't think, you know, that utopian moment in the story, I, I don't think it's wrong because there's so many terrible things in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's so much misfortune that you have to, in order to keep going, in order to combat that, you have to know that there is there is that things will turn out all right, even though we know, of course, that, you know, as Lily Tomlin tells us, we're all in this together, and none of us is getting out of it alive, right. <laughs> which is precisely why why I think we need uh, to know, yes, it is worth going on, because uh, there are people who will come after you, and so we need to know that if we're courageous, if we use our wits, if we try to do the, th- the right thing, it will turn out all right. Hmm. It'll Even turn. if it's just the short run. Exactly. It'll turn out all yeah. right, and then it will start all over again. <laughs> and I then mean, it'll get bad again. <laughs> yeah. I mean, something that you, um, you've written that's helpful to me in this context is um, you also have suggested that when, when we're reading to children, we don't we can have a conversational reading experience and we don't have to let it end at that happily ever after, that you can muse in that kind of conversational storytelling in a way, in a sense, is a version of being back around the fire where all of these fairy tales started with people batting these stories around, right? right? Yeah, and and also you'd never know uh, how the story is going to land. When you had those fireside scenes, my bet is somebody told a story and then there was protest. <laughs> you know, that's not how it should right. end. Or agreement or, or or somebody said, I'm going to end this a little bit differently. So, you know, we bring our own sensibilities to these stories. And, and that's where the great conversation. It's just sort of, it's like going to see a great movie. You know, what happens? The you know, the movie ends, uh, the lights go on, everybody's silent yeah. for a few minutes as they exit, and then suddenly you hear the conversations. Uh, everyone starts talking. And, you know, you have to digest that story. And and in those conversations, <sighs> the story keeps rolling, it starts rolling around keeps, in the world. Yeah, exactly. I had not made the connection between storytelling by the fire and Kindle as a name for our new reading device, one of our new reading devices. But Isn't you, it wonderful? Well, I hadn't thought about it. Is, <laughs> is, is that what they meant in naming it Kindle? I, I think, I don't know whether they did this uh, deliberately or, or whether it was just the subconscious at work, uh, but the fact that when they called it Kindle, I was already astonished, but then when the new version is Kindle Fire, and my <laughs> Kindle came in a box with the words, once upon a time on mm. the side. Mm. I'm told that the new ones don't come in that box, but there, there was even some fairy dust. I, granted, it was a cardboard box and it wasn't glitter, <laughs> but, but there was, you know, there were some little sparkly elements there on the once upon a time. So new media is always recycling old media in, in that fascinating way. And I, I think it's just a testament to the fact that, you know, we may... We may have new delivery systems, as the 
uh, media gurus tell us, but the stories are still there, and they're not going to go away. We may lose the codex. Uh, the, I hope we never lose that. The, the book is such a wonderful invention, and mm. it's it's uh, great in so many ways, but the stories will not disappear. Don't listen to it. Crows are all liars. I know a story about a crow. I hate your story. I know a story about a boy who hated stories. I could tell you about Sir Duncan the Tall. Those were always your favourites. Those weren't my favourites. My favourites were the scary ones. Oh, my sweet summer child, what do you know about fear? Fear is for the winter, when the snows fall a hundred feet deep. Fear is for the long night, when the sun hides for years and children are born and live and die, all in darkness. That is the time for fear, my little lord, when the white walkers move through the woods. Thousands of years ago, there came a night that lasted a generation. Kings froze to death in their castles, same as the shepherds in their huts. And women smothered their babies rather than see them starve, and wept, and felt the tears freeze on their cheeks. So is this the sort of story that you like? What are you telling him now? Only what the little Lord wants to hear. That's from the modern-day adult fairy tale and HBO series Game of Thrones. Maria Tatar is John L. Loeb Professor of Germanic Languages and Literatures at Harvard University, where she also chairs the program in folklore and mythology. Her books include Enchanted Hunters, The Power of Stories in Childhood, and The Annotated Brothers Grimm. Listen again and share this show with Maria Tatar at onbeing.org. There is also now an On Being app. Find it in the iTunes store, download it for free, and get every week's episode as soon as it's live. We're going to refine and expand the app this coming year, and we will welcome your suggestions. And you can always follow everything we do through our weekly email newsletter. Just click the newsletter link on any page at onbeing.org. Being is Trent Gillis, Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Chris Jones, and Joshua Ray, and is supported by the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org, and by Calliopeia Foundation, contributing to organizations that weave reverence, reciprocity, and resilience into the fabric of modern life. On Being is extending its reach throughout America with support from Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private foundation. On Being is distributed by American Public Media and is a Krista Tippett Public 
פרודקשן.